So today we're continuing. We're about three quarters of the way through, maybe if my math is right, two thirds of the way through, some, some above 50% number of our study through the book Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster, which just by way of reminders is a biblical theological study of the Old Testament scriptures. And today, the plan is we're going to study the book of Isaiah and what is known as the book of the, the Twelve Minor Prophets. And so Isaiah, much like the books we covered last week, which were, were Jeremiah and Ezekiel, follows a pretty similar pattern to, to those books. And so remember, we, we saw both Jeremiah and Ezekiel present very bleak pictures of the judgment of God's people, but also proclamations of great hope of, of a future new covenant that, that will guarantee a, a new heart, a, a, a regenerated heart, and obedience to the Lord in a way that, that, was, that is different than the old covenant. And so Isaiah is similar in that he, he also proclaims words of judgment and comfort throughout this book. We see that the God who would come against the land of Israel because of their, because of their wickedness, because of their wicked disobedience, is also the God who, who regathers the people after the exile. So, so we see the themes of, of judgment and deliverance in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah begins a little differently than, than Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in that it doesn't begin with, the, with um, Isaiah's call to the prophetic ministry. But it, the, the text begins with a series of, of prophecies or oracles that highlight and, and set the stage for the important themes that are found in the rest of the book. So Dempster spends most of his time on, in, in his analysis of Isaiah in these beginning oracles as they're, they're sort of the paradigm for interpreting the rest of the book, the, the rest of the text. So in Isaiah's opening prophecy in chapter 1, which you can turn there, we see a, a, a massive contrast to what we just saw at the end of Ezekiel, of, remember, of the, of the restored, almost paradise-like vision that Ezekiel had at the end of his book. Isaiah tells of a completely destroyed and devastated land. So, so read with me in, in Isaiah 1.7. It says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And if you jump back to, to verses two, and, 2 through 4, we see that, that it is Israel's sin, Israel's disobedience is the, is the cause for this utter desolation of the land, which is the first theme that Dempster points out, first major theme that Dempster points out in the book of Isaiah. And it's a theme that we should have become very familiar with thus far. The disobedience of Israel. The, the disobedience of Israel. And Isaiah picks up um, on the sonship language of Israel that we saw in Deuteronomy. So back in Deuteronomy 21, we saw how the Lord would, would discipline his disobedient child and if needed, exile them right from their land if they persisted in rebellion against his fatherly authority, against his fatherly rule. And in this first chapter of Isaiah, we see the pain of the Father, God, who, who, who has raised children who don't even acknowledge Him anymore. And so in verse 4, we see the text describe the, the nation's immorality. And in verse 5, you get this tragic question from the Lord. It says, why will you be struck down? Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? 
And then we get a, a description of, of the Assyrian invasion of the land in verses 8 and 9. And we see that, that God has chosen a remnant to preserve. And if he did not, then, then Israel would have suffered the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet that the people of Israel, and then in, in verses 10 and 11, are described as Sodom and Gomorrah, which is obviously not a compliment, right? This could be the biggest indicator that something has gone terribly wrong in the nation of Israel, as they're, they're, they're characterized as the, these places of wickedness that we saw in Genesis. So in this, this first part of the first chapter of Israel, I'm, I mean, of Isaiah, we see Israel, there's too many eyes this morning, who, who was chosen out of every nation on the earth to be God's son, whom, whom he brought up, right? We see this nation, this son of God, rebel against the Lord and face the, the punishment for their sin, and Dempster argues that the, probably the best place to see this theme of, of a disobedient son, a disobedient Israel, occurs in, in chapter 5 of Isaiah. With the oracle of the vineyard of the Lord. We see that that vineyard is made with, with great care and love and a portion of Fertile land is cleared and, and choice, fruitful vines are planted. There's, there's a wall and a watchtower and a wine press that is constructed. Right? The point being, everything that is, is possible was done to enable the vineyard to grow and to flourish and to produce fruit, to produce fruitful grapes. And the owner of the vineyard is dismayed to discover that this vineyard has produced actually nothing but wild, or, or you could translate that, bitter grapes. And so he had no choice but to demolish it, to destroy it. Isaiah then goes to, to connect the dots of this illustration for the Israelites in verse 7. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting." And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, so following this parable, Isaiah then lists out the, the Israelite sins, which are the, the bitter grapes in the story, the, the bitter fruit of God's people. Dempster writes, we see in these verses Israel recklessly buying up real estate with no concern for the poor, making pleasure the aim of life, the goal of life, working hard, but working hard at sin, calling good evil and evil good, and guilty of, of hubris and various injustices. And so in verses 24 through 30, we see that, that such a vineyard that is characterized by such blatant sin, by such blatant rebellion against God and God's law must be destroyed. It must be destroyed. So if these opening oracles describe Israel's judgment and, and its um, cause, there, there's also contained in these same opening chapters a glorious future for God's people, which shouldn't surprise us as we think about the, the latter prophets. We can see this in, in chapter 2, if you turn back there. We see the, the mountain of the house of the Lord, which is, I think, the, the temple, will grow to be the highest mountain in the world, right? dominating the landscape, just not of Israel, but of the entire world. Dempster writes, Zion has become Everest. Zion has become Everest in this oracle. And all the nations will actually flow upwards to the temple mount. So we have a, a, an ingathering of the nations, fulfilling the promise to, to Abraham in, that we saw in Genesis 12, that, that all the nations would be blessed through the, the patriarch. And in that day, God will, will rule among the nations with, with true justice and bring 
peace. So it's a, it's a, 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 a glorious picture of eschatological or, or end times hope for the people of God. We see another image of this hopeful future in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So amid the ruin and distress, hope will arise. We, we read that a cloud will overshadow the entire city of Jerusalem by day and a pillar of fire by night. We've seen this before, right? Echoing back to the divine presence, leading Israel in the desert and residing in the uh, tabernacle. But now the, the entire city will have become one holy of holies. And, and the biblical theologian Mitchell Chase, he makes the argument that, that Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6, anticipates a future work of God that is like the Exodus, like a, like a new Exodus, because, because God led the liberated people in the Exodus from Egypt with a cloud of fire. We can conclude from this new oracle from Isaiah, this, this new work of God to deliver his people will be a new Exodus, or like the Exodus in some way, which is an important theme to keep in mind as, as the story unfolds. But we see in the rest of Isaiah that these themes of, of judgment and, and glory, specifically a glorious future, are, are developed throughout the book. Dempster writes of these themes, he says that they present something of a real tension. An inherently sinful people and a coming judgment alongside a glorious destiny for Israel, ushered in by a messianic figure. An inherently sinful people and a coming judgment alongside a glorious destiny for Israel ushered in by a messianic figure. And so you'll, we're not going to go through, obviously, all of Isaiah, but these themes are very present if you read the, the 66 chapters. Any questions or comments? Will I pause? Okay, so now we get finally to, to chapter 6, which is the call of Isaiah to his prophetic ministry, which I'm sure you can guess just like Jeremiah and just like Ezekiel. This is important for the, the overall understanding of the book and the overall understanding of Isaiah's ministry. And so what we see is that in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah had a vision where he, he saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's a, it's a truly majestic scene. Isaiah sees and hears angelic beings praising the holiness of God and, and declaring his glory. And Isaiah responds in the presence of God's utter holiness with, with despair. He says in, in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And just for the record, this is the appropriate, proper response to have when you're in the presence of the King of, of heaven and earth, in the, pres in the presence of the Lord. Yes. I think, maybe, I, I'm not, I, that's 2 Kings. I just spoke to the queen, but I, I, think, I think it is, if I remember reading right, from a dark heart, you know, until she died. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, thank sort of you. A, a overarching theme. Kind of yeah, super helpful. Pride, the, the downfall, I guess you could say, of pride and the lifting up of humility. Um, yeah, thank you, very helpful. Um, no, this is my bad. <laughs> I'll find it eventually. <laughs> so Isaiah uh, acknowledges his uh, unworthiness and his sin, and we see the, the seraph touches his lips, which is uh, the kind of the, the point of his uncleanness, right? the point of his uncleanness, with a burning coal from the temple altar. 
and we read this, this is an atoning act, right? As Isaiah's guilt is taken away from him. Isaiah's guilt is taken away. So really, it's a really glorious passage in our Bibles, Isaiah 6. And then Isaiah receives his commission, which, which I read it. It's honestly kind of a strange one. He's told to speak to the people so that the people's hearts will harden. So the people's hearts will harden. Dempster writes, this mission is the antithesis of the prophetic test, which is to bring conviction, restoration, and repentance. Isaiah is actually called to, to accelerate the hardening of sinful Israel through his prophesying. And Isaiah responds in verse 11 with the question to the Lord, How long, O Lord, how long? How long will this mission last? Will this ministry last? And we see the Lord's answer in, in, in verses 11 through 13, which I'll read. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump." So not the most encouraging answer, right, for Isaiah. Isaiah's prophetic activity, his mission will continue until the whole land is, is laid to waste and the population has been deported. The, the image we're given here is if, as if the, the nation has been a, a mighty tree that has been chopped down and burnt down and all that's left is, is the stump of this nation, the stump of this tree. But do notice that that all-important note of hope, which we've seen throughout the the Old Testament narrative and and prophetic works, right in that last verse, the holy seed is its stump. Right, the seed of promise will will come from this remnant of Israel, and this one that is preserved. And so the next section of Isaiah in chapter 7 through 8 describes Israel's judgment by, by the Assyrians and the, the failure of the Davidic king, Ahaz, to, to trust in God. And in contrast to him, in chapter 9, we see a prediction of the coming of a true Davidic son, a son who will be born with, we all know this passage, right, with, with the, from Christmas time, with the government on his shoulders, called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right, this passage gives, gives massive detail on the coming king in the Davidic line that we've been seeing these, these prophecies over and over again. Right, Dempster argues that this passage seems to, to, you could say, explode expectations of this coming king. He's much more than just a descendant of David, though he is that. But there's going to be no limit to his rule. It will be eternal, everlasting. In chapter 11, verse 1, we see the same figure described as a shoot sprouting up from the stump of Jesse, David's father. So a shoot from the line of David. And if you look at verse 2 of chapter 11, we see this, this shoot from David's line will be full of the Spirit of God, which obviously includes all the, the, nece- all the qualities necessary for, for just and effective rule of this king. And what we see in the rest of chapter 11 is that, that this rule from this shoot from Jesse's line will transform the world into an Edenic paradise. So that even wild predators will become tame, right? We see descriptions of, of infants playing with serpents. Dempster says that there's probably no clearer picture of the restoration of the conditions of the paradise with Eden than, than these descriptions. So the point is that, that humanity has been restored to, to sort of its original position with God in the garden and this has only been brought about by a, a Davidic 
this Davidic king. So you could, the, uh, you could consider him a, a new Adam in this way. And so it's just an, another one of these, these glorious passages that, we, that we've seen throughout the prophets of this paradise-like end times hope. Now, now Dempster skips quite a bit of the content of Isaiah to get to what he views as, as kind of the unique contribution of Isaiah, or, or that Isaiah makes to the overall prophetic literature. And he argues that, that Isaiah describes why and how Israel will emerge from exile, which takes place in the second half of his text, chapters 40 through 66. Chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah. And I'm not good at math, but that seems more than half. 40 through 66. In chapter 40, we can see just a, a transition in the literary structure if you're reading through the book um, cover to cover, right? Where he's going, he's now, he, he, he kind of switches, he's now going to declare words of comfort to the people rather than primarily declare judgment. And he opens an announcement of forgiveness of the sins of the people and the end of the exile. And as the text unfolds, we, we see the introduction of this new character, uh, the servant of the Lord, or a servant of the Lord, who, who I think, most everyone thinks, this is the same as the Davidic king. So you can see one passage that, that I'll highlight is just um, Isaiah chapter 42. Very important verses here. I'll just read verses 1 through 4. The text says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So uh, another very important text here where, where we see that the servant has the spirit of the Lord, right? much like we saw in, in chapter 9 with the with the king from the line of David, the future king of the line of David. He will bring justice to the nations, but he won't use the, the normal methods of a typical king. He won't shite, shout or, or cry out. He, he won't want um, the limelight, so to speak. He won't have a, a burdensome rule that breaks the broken down and, and the downtrodden. So we see in Isaiah a, a servant of the Lord that will come who will, through his, his faithfulness, bring justice to the entire earth. And this universal dimension of his rule is also clear in, in the second appearance of the servant of the Lord in chapter 49. And we see, see more development of this coming servant that he will be called from, from his mother's womb. And he will not only restore, restore Israel, but be a light to the nations in order that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so what we've seen so far, taking into account the, the first part of Isaiah as well, is there, is there is a coming Davidic king that is going to come like, like a shoot or, or a twig out of a, the stump of the exiled, desolate Israel. And this Davidic king will establish universal justice across the entire world and will restore the world to its pre-fall paradise state. And so remember and, and see the, the similarities between these prophecies and what we've seen from um, the line of Judah, right? The promises and prophecies we've seen about the line of Judah back in Genesis 49, and or or, or the the Balaam oracles 
um, in the book of Numbers. They're very similar and they, they echo each other linguistically and thematically here in Isaiah and the other prophetic works. But there is a final very, very important text on this coming servant of the Lord that is found in Isaiah. It starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and then through chapter 12 of chapter 53. And I'm going to read this whole thing because it is very good and very important as we consider our Lord. But let's read about this servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried out our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and, for, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So obviously a very important, um, very famous text as, as we consider right in the New Testament our Lord's death and the fulfillment of these prophecies that we see so clearly and so powerfully in the, the New Testament. And in the context of Isaiah, with all these, these grand visions of a future hope from this Davidic king, it is a little surprising, right, that this king, this servant, would be described by suffering. So instead of impressing people with regal majesty, that, that's characteristic of earthly kings, he, he repels the people with his appearance. There's nothing to be desired about his physical appearance. He'll be despised and he'll be rejected. He, he, would, he, he would have no majesty that we should look at him. People would, would consider him the, the object of divine judgment and scorn. So this is not a picture 
we would expect of a king that will bring universal justice and blessing, right, to, to, to the ends of the earth. Dempster makes this, this very important connection in the text in verse 15 of chapter 52. So verse 15 of chapter 52, notice how it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle many nations. Um, we've seen this word before, sprinkle. Quiz time, anyone want to take a guess where? Not a guess, a well-informed, reasoned answer where we saw this word sprinkle before. Blood, yes, sprinkle. Yes, the answer back in Leviticus, right? Leviticus 16, think of the Day of Atonement. Um, And so I think Dempster's arguing, I think it's pretty clear that this verse here in Isaiah is pointing back towards the Day of Atonement and in Leviticus, and this verb is is typically only used for the practice of the sacrificial priesthood in the Old Testament, where where the high priest sprinkled in the place of atonement, right on the Ark of the Covenant with blood to atone for the sins of the entire Israelite community. But notice this servant here in Isaiah makes atonement for for who, not just Israel, but makes atonement for the entire world. So things a very important and, and beautiful connection in the text here in Isaiah. And we see that this, this atonement and, and sprinkling will be from this servant's wounding. It will be from, from his blood. Dempster writes, he, that, that's the servant, was not suffering for his own sake. He was suffering for the people laid with guilt. Yahweh strikes him for them, an obedient son for for disobedient children. And in in verse 5, we see that the the people's peace, the people's shalom, comes as a result of the application for for the punishment that was set on him, this this suffering servant. So so just to summarize the, the important this important last text about the, the suffering servant, what we see then is that the righteous servant described in Isaiah suffers and dies as a, as a sin bearer for his people. In the rest of Isaiah, we see the result or, or the impact of the suffering servant as we see chapters full of joy and singing. As in chapter 54, we see the, the people of God sing a new song declaring uh, a new covenant in verse 10 of chapter 54, which states, for, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. So notice that covenantal language of steadfast love that we've seen before. So the the accomplishment of the suffering servant then will be to bring a a new covenant to the people of God where God's love will not depart from its members or for its members. And his peace shall never be removed, an everlasting peace. These are glorious promises that we can hold on to in Christ. And so there's obviously a lot more we could say about Isaiah. It is a vast book, a long book. Um, but that's where we're going to stop for, for our study. Is there any comments or questions regarding Isaiah before we move on? Yes. So there's, I'm not super familiar with this academic discussion, but there's many in the academic world um, that would view Isaiah is made up of three books, maybe more, from different authors. This is kind of the the typical view of the liberal scholar. Um, And then I don't know what conclusions they gain from this, but um, essentially evangelicals typically reject that view and think there's a single author, which I agree with. 
and I believe Dempster does as well. I don't know if Blake has any other super knowledge. <laughs> All right, so let's turn to the book of the Twelve. or the, the 12 minor prophets. So just a note to remember, Dempster and the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament does not place the book of Daniel in the, the prophetic literature like our English orderings. Um, Daniel is placed at the end of the book of the writings when, when the narrative storyline picks back up right at the, the end of the Old Testament. So obviously Dempster views these 12 collection of writings of, of prophetic literature as one book. And they, they conclude the prophetic commentary in the Old Testament. And he views the 12 prophets as, as the 12 chapters in this book, of this one book. And Dempster argues in the book, if you read it, that there's, there's very strong evidence that indicates to us that the book has been carefully crafted to link um, the various chapters or the 12 books into an overall unity. I think he's right, um, right? Obviously, beginning with Hosea, ending with Malachi. I'll just cite one example he presents um, for this argument. And that is the, the prophetic saying about the Lord roaring from Zion, right? We see this close the book of Joel in Joel 3.16 and opens the following prophecy of Amos, so in Amos 1.2, in almost the exact same language, right? This is just one point of connection. There's, there's others that he goes through in the book. Um, but I think we, we can see that that... You can just take my word for it, or you can just read it, make all these connections yourself, um, that these books or chapters are one book, right? And they, they, we, they're put together with intent to create an overall unity in the message of that one book with the 12 chapters. And so the overall message of the book is really not totally different than what we've seen in the first three major or, or larger prophetic works. Dempster writes a pretty good summary of the main themes and contents of the 12 minor prophets. He says, These books complete the prophetic commentary by emphasizing again the sin of Israel, the just judgment of God, and hope after the judgment. Then he goes on, he says, This, hopes, this hope finds expression in a number of features. We see a return to the land, a new covenant, a universal element of blessing, the renewal of nature, and the prominence of the Davidic house, right? both, both temple and dynasty, in both uses of the word house. We also see an emphasis on repentance and an eschatological ordeal such as a final battle or cosmic upheaval. A final battle or cosmic upheaval. So really, right, there's not much different than, than the themes and contents we've seen thus far in the prophetic literature. And not every of these 12 books deals with each of these themes, um, but, but as viewed as one whole book, right, with, with, 12, with 12 chapters, this is what we see as the major themes that, that get presented in the text. So Dempster doesn't go through the content of each book, or each of the 12 prophets, but he traces the, the themes and contents and the overall flow of the text. So the first theme he traces is again, sin and judgment, sin and judgment, which we've seen throughout the prophetic literature. So Hosea opens the book on the note of, of the defilement of the land of Israel brought by, by the persistent violation of God's law and the, and the Old Covenant stipulations. And Israel is compared to an adulterous wife who has a, a fundamental propensity to unfaithfulness, to, to be unfaithful. And so really in the strongest language possible in the Hebrew language, we see in, in Hosea, Israel is described as her actions being linked to, to whoredom, 
which is depicted, right, in, in Hosea's wife's unfaithfulness. So the, the first major oracle of Hosea in, in chapters 1 through 3 describes the ugly picture of, of rampant lawlessness that left the land desolate. In the book of Amos, Amos sort of verbally attacks Israel for trampling the head of the poor and the dust of the earth. Right? He, he, he uh, characterizes Israel for their wicked oppression in the land. And you can find other sorts of lists of, of the sins of the people in, in Micah, Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4. Zephaniah chapter 1, this is a, a longer list, uh, chap, or verses 4 through 13 of chapter 1 of Zephaniah. And, and by the end of the book of the 12, when the exiles of Judah have, have returned to the land, it seems as if nothing has has changed in some sense because the people continue in their sinful rebellion and their old sinful ways. Haggai states that the people's priorities, they're they're all messed up. They're not as they, they should be. They're wrong. Zechariah described many social sins and, and Dempster argues that the overall picture of the people in, in Malachi is one of depression. It's depressing to read of the people's condition in Malachi. There's, there's rampant unfaithfulness by the priests and the laity. There's, there's corrupt teaching. There's widespread divorce. There's hypocrisy. Widespread immorality. Absence of tithing. And religious skepticism all characterize the people in the book of Malachi, which it's a a post-exilic prophecy, so a a prophecy that occurs after the return of the people from exile. And so all, all of these prophets announce in some way coming judgment for this wickedness of the people. And one of the areas that, that is unique, or at least developed in the book of the Twelve, is an impending day of, of end-time disaster for Israel and the world. This is known as, as the day of Yahweh, in the time, or, or the day of the Lord. We see that probably in the ESV. We, we first see mention of it in the book of Joel. Joel verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Then again, we see reference to this day in Amos chapter 5. We see it in, in Obadiah and, and Zephaniah and the end of Malachi. They all make reference to the same day. This day will bring final judgment. Right? If, we, if we take kind of the synthesis of all, the, all of those texts, what we see is that this day will bring final judgment on the people's sins and will not be, will not be a good day, not be a good day at all for those who are unrepentant in their wickedness in hardness of heart to the Lord. There will be total annihilation and defeat for those who stand opposed to Yahweh, for those who stand opposed to the Lord and His rule. But much like like the other prophetic works, it's not all doom and gloom in these books or in these chapters. They also hold out hope for a transformation of the land and the people if there is repentance from sin, if there is a turning away from their allegiance to sin. And that is a big if, right? You could say a a new world is promised after the judgment. In the book of Joel, which is just one example, the, the earth is renewed so that the mountains are ripe with wine and, and hills with, with milk, while rivers of water flood all the valleys of Judah. That's a good flooding. I'd say a proper amount of precipitation in the valleys of Judah. So notice, much like we saw in the book of Ezekiel, a, a restoration of nature. One can find very similar language and imagery. You can just jot these down. Um, and, and read them later, but in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 
in, in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 20 through 21. So, so in keeping with the thesis of this book, um, Dominion and Dynasty, we can see clearly that the, the geographical renewal is a big aspect of the latter prophets, including the book of the Twelve. Obviously, it leads to the question, what about dynasty? What about genealogy? Dempster argues that, that genealogical development is much like the other prophets as a descendant of Abraham and David will be raised up to preside over the renewal of this geographical land, the renewal of, of nature. So at the beginning, we see, we see Hosea prophesy that, that an individual identified as David, their king, that's how, that's how he writes it. David, their king, will appear in the latter days. Amos predicts the, the resurrection of the Davidic house in, in Amos 9.11. Haggai calls the Davidic ruler... Um, sorry, I lost my place again. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. We're going to meet Zerubbabel later in, in the narrative as the one who, who led the first Jews back to the land after the exile. But in, but in Haggai, Zerubbabel is characterized as, as Yahweh's representative on the earth, and his reign is associated with the demise of the pagan kingdoms, of the pagan kingdom. Something similar happens in the book of Zechariah. Zerubbabel is a key person in, in the establishment of the post-exilic kingdom, and one in the line of David. Right? We see him in um, the genealogical text in, in Matthew 1. He's very important in the post-exile line of David story. And Dempster spends more time right, in the book of Zechariah explaining the development of the theme of dynasty in the Minor Prophets, kind of as a, a paradigm of the rest of the book. Dempster points out that, that the roles of the king and priest develop together in Zechariah. And Zechariah is, is a prophet that is given visions, much like uh, Ezekiel. And in these visions, we see these roles of king and priest become intertwined. They develop together. It echoes what we saw in, in parts of Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's most clearly seen in the second section of the book of Zechariah in chapters 9 through 14. This ruler from the line of David is distinguished by, by suffering and humility, as well as by regal majesty. You can turn over to, to Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10. I'll read it for us, just so you can see this, this contrast of suffering and, and majesty. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So notice this king will, will come like a servant who will come on a, a mission of peace for Israel in all the nations from sea to sea. He comes riding on, on a humble donkey and yet his dominion will be the entire world. Right? You, you see this, this contrast. And there, there's, there's other texts and, and visions in, in Zechariah that depict this one coming in the line of David as being struck down for the sake of his people, being struck down for the sake of his people, which is very much in line for what we saw earlier in Isaiah 53. Um, Dempster argues Malachi, Malachi closes the, the prophetic literature appropriately and Malachi, again, like Haggai and, and Zechariah, are books written in the post-exilic period, so, so after Israel has returned to the land. Um, but the return 
right? If, if you think back to, to all these uh, prophecies we, we've heard about, kind of the restoration of the land and the Edenic-like paradise that would come, so just remembering kind of that prophetic glory that was predicted for Jerusalem and the land during the exile, all of those glorious prophecies we've been reading, right, they haven't come to pass when the people returned originally from exile. Dempster writes, Jerusalem is certainly not the center of the earth, nor does there seem to be any leader on the immediate horizon who can change Israel's condition, let alone bring just, justice to the ends of the earth. And what we see is actually that the people have again lapsed spiritually, and both Zechariah and Haggai describes the, the returnees as living in exilic conditions, living like they're in exile, even though they're back in the land of promise. We're going to see uh, this more developed when we get back to the, the narrative storyline. Um, but the, the people are, we can see in these, these prophetic texts, the people are urged to prepare for the Lord's coming the day he will appear in judgment. And so Malachi chapter 4, you can turn there, um, he, Malachi, at the end of chapter 4, which is only five verses, I think, he, he draws attention to two canons or the two books of Scripture, the law and, and the prophets. Moses, the, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the great prophet. And Yahweh will, will send one like the prophet Elijah, and his coming will signal the advent of the coming of the day of the Lord, right? I think that the, the end of times. And Dempster argues this prophet will be like Moses and Elijah, or, or even, there's, there's some indication in the text, this is not super clear, um, but there, there's some indication that this, this prophet will be like Moses and Elijah, or even like the Lord himself, right? So the... the uh, Glorious ending to the end of the prophetic literature and the end of the book of the Twelve that's obviously pointing forward to Jesus. Now, this is a lot of just reading the prophetic literature. If you were to just read it or study it, there is a ton of information. There's, a, there's just a lot of words, first of all. Um, and there's a lot of oracles, a lot of pronouncements, a lot of different visions. It can honestly be pretty overwhelming to put everything together, especially if you're, if you're taking it from a big picture, whole Bible um, synthesis like, like we're doing in this study. So Dempster provides a very helpful section of just a summarization of what we've seen in the latter prophets in all this commentary. Um, so this is really important, maybe the most important part of this study um, on the latter prophets, especially because we're putting together right the, the big picture, the larger story of the Old Testament. So the first thing to point out right in this summary of what we've seen in all of these books over the past two weeks is that the the narrative storyline that we've saw all the way that, that ended in 2 Kings, right? It, it led to the exile in Babylon. Instead of being primarily regarded as doom and gloom, totally full of despair, if we read them in light of the prophetic literature, there is actually, it should inspire for the reader hope and comfort. Obviously, there's there's a massive number of oracles of judgment for sin, but there are also new announcements, a lot of them. So remember with me, since, since the, the Old Covenant didn't bring right fellowship for the people of God, it didn't transform the people's inherent sinful condition, which we've seen through this narrative storyline over and over again, and, and, and therefore the, the, the covenant fail, failed in this sense, we see these, these prophecies that God is going to establish a new covenant with his elect people. One where his law will be written on the people's heart and they will actually receive new, transformed, or to use the language of Deuteronomy, circumcised hearts in some way. 
we also see the land will be renewed in some way with, and the nation resurrected. Jerusalem will be, be central and the nations will experience blessings through Jerusalem in some way. So what we, what we really see in, is the continuation of the theme that we've seen throughout this book, right? Geographical centrality. A new world dominion will, will come. But, but through who? Notice also the, the, the oracles and prophecies we saw of the Davidic ruler who will one day come. And if we go back, rewind back to um, the end of 2 Kings, the end of the narrative story, right? the end of that first half of the Old Testament, the people in exile may seem like the, the genealogical element has, has eliminated in the story. Even in the prophets, like, like Jeremiah, who pronounces doom to, this, to the Davidic line, to the Davidic ruler. But there are also notes of hope in Jeremiah. Remember the, the, the text of righteous new plant growth from the line of David, who will again rule Judah. Isaiah uses a similar metaphor of a, a shoot or a twig springing up from the, the chopped off tree, from the stump. All the other prophets agree that a new David will lead the people into a new kingdom. Dempster would call this the, the chorus of the latter prophets, the chorus of the latter prophets. And if you remember, again, back to the end of the book of Kings with the, the story of Jehoiakim, the Davidic king, and his release from prison, I think if we have the prophetic commentary in mind, that story leaves no doubt to us that it's a promising sign of things to come and intentionally put there at the very end of Kings to provide hope for the people of God. And remember, we... we we, we learn new things about this Davidic king in the latter prophets, right? He, he's marked by one with great unmatched power, with all glory and strength in some places. And in others, he's described by his weakness, obscurity, and, and suffering, even to the point of death. Right? We saw this so clearly in the book of Isaiah with the pronouncements of the suffering servant, and we saw that this suffering servant is essential to bringing about forgiveness of the people's sins. So we see in the, the latter prophets, and this is really huge when the New Testament comes, but we see the, the combination or the blending of the kingly and priestly roles. And finally, we, we, we see the, the conclusion of this priest king the conclusion of his mission will bring forgiveness to many. That is, the, the new covenant that he will establish will not just be with Israel, but be made available to all peoples to the ends of the earth. We saw this, this in Zechariah, right? As the Davidic ruler will come to bring peace and not war to the nations. Dempster concludes, what we learn here, he says, it would, be, it would appear that the servant king will accomplish his mission in relative obscurity, bringing healing and hope to the marginalized and crowning his work by offering himself as an atonement for the sins of the many. After this period will be a time of power and glory when he will rule the nations and his triumph will be celebrated the world over. I think this is a great summary of, of what we see this Davidic priest king coming to do in the, in the storyline of the scriptures. So that's it for the, the latter prophets. There's a bunch of rich commentary that, that helps us actually have a greater understanding of the narrative in the Old Testament um, and gives us a proper grid of interpretation and, and expectation as the story unfolds and as as we meet this this suffering priest king and jesus so next week we'll, be, we'll begin with the the book of the writings um, it's the last book in the tanakh ordering and we'll start with the book of ruth and see how far we can get and sorry i went a little over but you guys are dismissed <laughs>